All right, how we doing? <clears throat> We're going to have some fun today. Someone brought this at 30. I was like, I need this for the rest of the day, please. Uh, because if you fall asleep, I will wake you up. That's, that's the plan. So... No, they were not reacting, and so at, at 11 or at the 10 o'clock service, I hardly had to use it. I, I don't know what this crowd. I don't know if you just got up and you need some, you know, or you're with me, okay? But we're going to figure it out. All right, are we doing good? Some people are visibly shaken right now that there is a tambourine up here. That's just what cracks me up. I promise it will not be a distraction. I promise. Maybe, okay. Well, hey, uh, it is week two of our series party, people, and uh, thank you, uh, yeah, it's that pastor appreciation. And I just want to be a people of honor, right? I, I want to honor people in general. And, and so that just means that that's not really held within a time frame or a purpose. I just want to be people who treat people the way we want to be treated. And I think we just need to do a lot more uh, of a better job honoring each other. And here's why, and we're talking about today, because we are a party people. I believe what we celebrate, God accelerates. Now in that, what I'm saying is I think what he attunes our hearts to, what we celebrate as we value, we learn to attune our own attention to it and we look for it and we find it in the craziest of places, which we'll find out today. Uh, but we are looking at the Jewish feasts found in Leviticus 23. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there. We're gonna be there today. And, and what we learned is, is that finding contentment is not a new problem. It's an ages old problem, right? If, if we don't orient our joy in what God is up to, the world has a lot of answers for what we should celebrate, don't they? Don't they? Okay, okay, just making sure, just making sure. And I think many of us right now, what the, the truth is, we just gotta turn off the news because we, we get so distracted and we forget that God is still on the throne. And so what we're looking at are these these old feasts, and yes, while we're under no compulsion to continue to celebrate them, I want to ensure that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because there's things in them that we can take, we can learn, we can remember that have much value today. So last week, we looked at kind of a 30,000 view, and it was like drinking from a fire hose. Amen? I wish I wasn't doing it again today. Sorry. It is, but we're going to now look at the spring feast. There's seven feasts. There's four in the spring, three in the fall. We're going to deep dive in more detail, greater detail, the spring feast, which I'll explain here in a second, but I want to make sure we understand why. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, and I really wanted to anchor us today, is found in Nehemiah. In fact, Nehemiah was celebrating one of the feasts when he said this. He was celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. He said, hey, you need to get the best drinks, the best food, and you need to celebrate. Why? Because it's on the screen. Nehemiah 8.10 says, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. And I think sometimes we need to be reminded of what motivates our strength. Amen. Okay, good, good. So we're going to deep dive this, and I'm going to recap. If you missed last week, I'm going to give you kind of a quick update. I promise it will not be long, and it will not suffice for what you missed last week, but you won't be lost today. That's what I can promise. All right, well, last week we talked about that we are people of the promise. And here's what I mean. For over 1,500 years, God had the Israelites act out his plan of redemption in the hope that it would point them to the one he would send to be their savior. We know him as Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for being with us. Today and in our lives, we pause, we reflect, we remember, and we celebrate that we can live a life of joy and contentment. The joy of the Lord can be our strength because... Jesus did what he said he was going to do. 
We live in a world where people don't do what they say they were gonna do, yet Jesus did. We're people of the promise. And because we're people of the promise, get this, we can cling to what he has already done as we look forward to what he promises he will do again. That's why we sing that song that we sang today, right? We wait patiently because we are clinging to the hope that he is coming back. And when he comes back, he's gonna reconcile, restore, renew, and make all things right. And I can't wait for that to happen. Church, are you excited? Okay, good. So let's deep dive the promise that God today, we're in Leviticus chapter 23. The spring feasts are as follows. First, we have Passover. Then we have the feast of unleavened bread. The third feast is the feast of first fruits. And then feast number four is Shabbat or the feast of weeks. So my plan today is to look at each one of those, read what Leviticus says, unpack some of the nuances, and then at the end, I'll kind of tie how all four of these feasts point to what Jesus had already fulfilled. Does that sound good? All right. Are you guys ready? Okay, sorry. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. Sorry, I'm sorry. Sorry. Okay, here we go. Uh, Leviticus 23, we're going to pick up in verse 5. It is on the screen if you want to follow along. It says this, the Lord's Passover begins at sundown on the 14th day of the first month. On the next day, the 15th day of the month, you must begin celebrating the festival of unleavened bread. Verse six, the festival to the Lord continues for seven days. And during that time, the bread you eat must be without yeast. On the first day of the festival, all the people must stop their ordinary work and observe an official day of holy assembly. For seven days, you must present special gifts to the Lord. And then on the seventh day, the people must again stop their ordinary work and observe it as an official day of holy assembly. Now, if you read that too fast, you might've missed it because in there, there's two feasts, not just one, two. And the reason why we don't deep dive right there, the Feast of Passover, is because both of these feasts were given before Leviticus was written. They, they, were, they were that. So we're gonna have to deep dive a little bit of Exodus. And, and most people know that, or not most people, in practice, what we do is we run the two festivals or feasts together. In fact, many Jews say they call it the, the eight-day feast. And what they have is Passover followed by seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Seven plus one equals... There you go, you get it, eight days. But I wanna make sure we understand what Passover is and then we'll deep dive what the Feast of first or feast of Unleavened Bread is. All right, does it sound good? So here's what Passover is. The biblical definition of Passover is a one-day feast that is immediately followed by a seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread. It is the foundational feast. The six feasts that follow are built upon it. And to understand what Passover was, we have to go back 400 years uh, the Jewish people had lived in Egypt. It was a place of escape and a place of, of getting out of the famine. And then it became a place of slavery. And, and so God came to this guy named Moses. And, and if you never read Exodus, it's a great book because it works through all of his, his inadequacies and his fears about what God wanted him to do. And ultimately God says, I want you to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And I'm gonna give you all of these cool things to do. And so he does it. And, and the time had come for God to bring back his people to a land that he had promised them. And then in Exodus 11, we get a detailed account of what Moses did. And ultimately in, in, in Exodus 11, we find that, that Moses had all these little like miracles or 
ma- magic tricks. I, I don't mean to be facetious. That's not funny. I, I don't know what you call them. Uh, but he, he did these things to try to testify to Pharaoh that his God, Yahweh, was the one true God and was more powerful. And ultimately, it didn't work. In fact, there was something even crazier that happened is, is Moses, or not Moses, but Pharaoh did one of two things. He either matched the miracle or the trick or endured the plague that Moses brought. And I want to speak to that because I think sometimes we forget that we serve a God who said that there is an unseen world and there's powers in the darkness. That there are things that, that the, the enemy has. There, there are things that he is capable of doing. And that's why we have to guard ourselves with what we invite into our life because it can take power over us. In fact, Moses turned the Nile River to blood and, and Pharaoh's little magicians or little G gods did the same thing. They had power then authority. But here's the crazy part is we celebrate the spring feast and we hold to the fall feast because we know in the fall feast, God will defeat all the little G gods. But ultimately, Moses had to pull out the big dog and it was the 10th and final plague. And this is where uh, Moses was told by God, hey, I want you to do this. I'm going to send my angel of death and any on that final plague, uh, everyone, I'm going to pass by people's homes and the first of everything at midnight, the Lord passed through the land and killed the firstborn of each family and all of their cattle. With this final climactic plague, God would dramatically free his people from the bondage of evil, evil and Egypt. God ordained the Passover to be observed each year on the 14th day of the Hebrew month, Nisan. Now, that happens in March and April. Do you know what else happens in March or April? Easter. Okay, just keep that in the back of your mind. So what what is this? What do they do in this Passover feast? Well, I'm glad that you asked. Each family was to select a year-old male lamb in its prime without flaw or defect. Now, I I, got to pause here for a second. I just want to get real. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of put a little bit more weight, if you will, on Passover and then uh, the final feast, Shavuot, because they tie it together really nicely. And you'll, you'll see why in the end. But I want to make sure that I do my best to help you feel the weight and the burden of, of Passover. And, and the only way I know how to do that is to connect it to things that I know you're connected to and personal. So I'm not trying to be dramatic. I just want to make sure we feel this. Okay, so, so give you an example. He, God asked every family to choose a lamb that was one year old without defect in its prime. Now, I don't know about you, but do, do you have a pet at home? Because this is, Passover was different than all the other feasts in this regard. I, I know that I prayed uh, to God. I said, God, I, I, want, a, I want a therapy dog. And, and the Lord must have misheard me because he got me a dog that needs therapy. It's really wild. <laughs> And my dog is two years old and he is still very much in his puppy phase. And he, he does this thing where he, he thinks that he, if I touch any family member without inviting him to be a part of it, he gets real upset. Not like I'm going to hurt you, but he makes it known that he is upset. And he then sits on you like he's a lap dog, but he weighs 60 pounds. And so I have lots of pictures in my house of this giant dog sitting on my lap or, or I've even brought him to the office and he's sitting in my desk chair with me. And I'm like, I, I can't get any work done. You, what are you doing? And he cannot ever be alone. He's just got to be with you. 
And he has this thing where he, he kind of goes up to you and he sits real proper and his back straight as an arrow. Uh, and he looks at you with these eyes and his, his ears kind of drop back and they well up. And it's like you just melt in front of him. And typically he just wants you to give him some uh, treat or some attention. But for whatever reason, it's, it's like this a superhuman, powerful gift that just caused you to bend to his will. Anyone else have a pet like that? Okay, good. I'm not the only one. Uh, growing up, my mom, it was a rabbit. It doesn't have to be a dog. It could be a rabbit. I've never heard stories of a cat like that, but that's, that's neither here nor there. But my mom had a rabbit and she would like wrap it in a blanket and hold it like a baby and rock it to sleep. It's beautiful, yes. And, and that, that rabbit could kill you and still get away with it because my mom loved it so much. I mean, it's just truth, okay? Now, I want you to understand why I just told you all that. It's because this is, this is the, the cruelty, cruelty, and I don't mean, don't take it out of context, I'm not saying God is cruel. I think it is the, the reality of the burden of what God asks. It says that Passover is to be celebrated on the 14th day. But what it commands us to do in, in, in Exodus 12 is that on the 10th day, you would go and pick that lamb. And you would do something so peculiar, you would bring it into your house and you would love it. In fact, if it was my house, I know that my kids would name it and they would probably feed it. And because lambs are adorable, anyone ever been down where the, where the sheep lady had, had lambs? Or, right? My, every time my wife would drive by, she's like, please take one. And I'm like, where would she put it? She's like, in the back seat. And I'm like, no, those are so adorable, Right? My kids would cuddle it. They'd probably try to make it to go to, to bed with them. And they, in the morning, they wouldn't ask for mom or dad. They'd ask for whatever they named this little sheep. Why am I telling you this? Is because this was by design. These Israelite people would invite this lamb into their house so that they could fall in love with it. It would be a time for each family member to become personally attached to the lamb. So it would no longer be just the lamb. Because I think that's where we sometimes get lost. It's not just the lamb. It was their lamb. It was their lamb. Why am I telling you that? Because it would deeply impress upon them the costly nature of sacrifice because on the evening of the 14th day, the lambs were to be publicly killed by the whole assembly. All the people were responsible for the death of lambs. Yet in contrast, each family was to individually apply the blood of their lamb to the doorpost of their home as a visible sign of their faith in the Lord. God commanded the Passover to be observed as a memorial forever. Passover is this moment where we remember that sin demands a cost and it was meant to hurt. But the beauty of Passover is we didn't have to pay that cost. We got to impart that cost on something we came to love, the little lamb. The feast wouldn't be complete without the lamb and the matzah or the unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And it would raise questions in the minds of the children so that the Exodus story could be rehearsed and told from generation to generation. I want to pause right here. If you're one of my more senior saints, can I, can I just bend your ear for a second? If you are not intentionally sharing and testifying to what God has done in your life and through your life to the next generation, you are robbing them of having to learn through their own choices. 
What, what, I, what I mean by this is that I think sometimes what one generation enjoys in modesty, the next enjoys in excess. And I think right now we're living in a generation where we're excessively using God's grace. And, and listen, he's got no shortage of grace and that's good because we all need it. But I think we have robbed each other of telling each other the truth and sharing the stories and the hard lessons we had to learn from one generation to the other. And so we're making this next generation learn the hard way. And I will tell you, we can't afford for them to learn the hard way. We need them to, we have to pay the penalty and and get over our own embarrassment, our own fear, and testify to what God did us, what he redeemed in us, what he restored in us, what he reconciled us, because the next generation needs to hear your stories. Because right now they're doubting if God is who they say he is. But you're a trusted source. And if you're not telling them, you're saying to the next generation, go figure it out on your own. And I promise we aren't going to like the results of that. So please do that. What happens after Passover as we move into the Feast of Unleavened Bread? It starts the very next day. What is the point of this feast? It was a reminder of God's miraculous deliverance from the Egyptian bondage. See, Israel fled from Egypt in the middle of the night. And there was no time to let the bread dough rise. So the Lord commanded... Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it, the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that you would remember in the day which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was also the first of three annual pilgrim fests. Now let's pause there. What does that mean? It means of the seven feasts, three of them required you to vacation or you to go on a trip. Not just the man, but the whole family. Well, you say, Pastor, how do you, how do you afford that? And I, I don't know about you, but I'm just going to be as honest with you as possible. Uh, do, do you ever just wake up one day and be like, you know what? I need a vacation. Kids, tomorrow's Friday. Let's just go to Disney World. We'll buy plane tickets. We'll see if they have a hotel. And we'll just go have some fun. Does that, does that sound like a fun vacation to you? That, that sounds like hell to me, just to be honest with you. <laughs> I, after the 8.30 service, or yeah, 8.30 service, I went up to some guy and I knew he was on vacation. I'm like, hey man, how was vacation? And he said, not good. I'm like, oh man. He's like, yeah. He's like, everyone want to just sit around. I'm a doer. I'm going to go do something. And I'm like, I'm with you, man. I want, I'm going to plan. He, here's my point is the best family vacations require planning. They require you to prepare for what you hope to experience. Why am I telling you this is because what we miss in this, and I don't want to miss it, I want you to hear it, because many of you, you want something to God to do something in your family, but you refuse to prepare for it. And I don't want you to miss out on this. See, back then, these people lived on about 67% of their income. What? Yeah. For every dollar they made, they only lived on 67 percent of it. Why? Because 10% went of it to the church. It was the offering. It's what they gave to the Levites to to keep the temple operating and to make sure that the the pastors in the church was functioning. 10% was was given as an offering above and beyond. It's it's how we did the immeasurably more to the body of Christ or the church. It's how we took care of our widows and orphans. It's what we used to just generally bless people. You know where the remaining 13% went? To the feasts. It's how they planned and prepared and banked on. What am I trying to tell you? I'm trying to tell you it's very biblical that you take a vacation, but you need to plan and prepare for it. 
And unfortunately, many of us, we just walk around exhausted and dramatic and we don't plan and we don't prepare and we want God to bless what isn't in order. And the feasts remind us that God is a God of order. And so in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it was a vacation to remember, which I know is a, is a mixed bag because you're like, vacation is to fun and I want to forget. No, no, we serve a God who wants us to remember his goodness in the land of living. And so we would move the whole family, not move, but we'd take a trip into the city. And during this, this, this seven-day fest, Jewish men were required to present themselves before the Lord at the temple. And the biblical record of the Feast of Unleavened gives us three things, three things that were happening. Number one, special sacrifices were to be offered in the temple each day of the feast. Number two, the first and seventh days of the feast were Sabbaths with prohibitions on all work. I'm with you. I, I like to be one of those people. I, I like vacations with movement. I like vacations of discovery. I like to keep it going. But God is saying, hey, no, no. On these two days, you're going to do nothing and you're going to remember who I am and what you are not. And then the third thing was, leaven was strictly forbidden. What am I saying? It would force them to do spring cleaning. They would literally go through their homes and they would remove anything that had leaven in it. Bread, seasoning. They would literally clean their houses, scrub them out. It says, in fact, if leaven was found in the home, you were cut off from the tribe of Israel. They took it so serious, they would empty out their houses and scrub the corners to ensure that no leaven had gotten in their house. And they would do this for seven days, Passover, and then they would Sabbath, and then they would celebrate, honor, remember, sacrifice, and then they would pause and rest in God and who he is, and then they would travel home. That moves us through the first two feasts. Let's pick up in verse nine, it says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. When you enter the land I'm giving you and you harvest the first crops, bring the priest a bundle of grain from the first cutting of your grain harvest. On the day after Sabbath, the priest will lift it up before the Lord so it may be accepted on your behalf. On the same day, you must sacrifice a one-year-old male lamb with no defects as a burnt offering to the Lord. With it, you must present a grain offering consisting of four quarts of choice flour moistened with olive oil, and it will be a special gift, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You must also offer one quart of wine as a liquefied offering. Do not eat anything, any of the bread, the roasted grain, or the fresh kernels, on that day until you bring your offering to God. For this is a permanent law for you, and you must observe it from generation to generation, wherever you live. What we find in these verses is the feast of first fruits. First fruits marked the beginning of the cereal grain harvest in Israel. Barley was that first grain to ripen. And it was sown over the winter and it would be the first that sprouted up. And here's what's crazy is all throughout scripture, you could see a common theme. That common theme is first things are important to God. It's oft repeated theme in scripture. God declared that in general, the first fruits of all agricultural produce belong to him from grain to wine, to oil, to fleece. This included, I put on the screen for you. It included all of the seven major crops of land, barley, wheat, grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, and dates. The first fruits of the bread dough are also belong to him as a heave offering. We find that in Numbers. I'm going to pause here. What are, what are the people of Israel saying when they participate in the feast of first fruits? They're saying before they ever partake, before they ever do anything, what they do is they give it to God. Why? 
Because when they give it to God, they know that he will sustain them with whatever's left. Why is this so important? Because, you know, we live in a world where as the church as a whole, you know what we do? We give God what we have left. And we ask him to bless whatever's left. To multiply whatever's left. And we forget the dramaticness of this, that God asks for us to trust him with the first thing. The first thing. He wanted the first of every crop. In fact, he doubles down. He says, I want you to, the first bread that you make, the first time you use the grains that you harvest, the first thing you make, I want you to bring that to me. Which, pause for a second. I just want you, I don't know if you've ever been to like a Brazilian steakhouse or something. If you haven't, you should. You get like meat sweats. It's awesome. Some of the guys are like, yes. Some of the girls are like, what did he just say? Okay, uh, but what's crazy about the Brazilian steakhouse is the smells, it's the aromas. It's all these meats on an open fire and you can smell it. You can smell the bread that they give you, which I don't know, it's got some drugs in it or something because it tastes so good. You smell it. And I want, you to, I want that to envelop your senses because senses trigger memory. But you know what's crazy is the aroma is good for a bit and then it turns Here's what I'm saying is when you bake bread, it smells really good until you burn it. That steak smells really good until you burn it. Little Bo Peep and lamb chops taste real good until you burn them. Why am I telling you this is because I think that's the reminder of what is the pleasing aroma to our God is that we trust him with it all. Not on our terms, but that he engulfs it all. And he goes on, he doubles down. What does it say? It says in, in Exodus 12 and 34 and Numbers 3, and he says the firstborn males of all animals. It even says the firstborn of the Israelites themselves belong to God. In fact, Jesus was dedicated as the firstborn in his family unto the Lord. In fact, lots of the first sons were dedicated unto the Lord because even us as human beings, the first of us, were dedicated to be used for God's purpose. You can see it all throughout scripture. And finally, that brings us to the fourth and final feast, Shavuot or the Feast of Weeks. Let's pick up in verse 15. From the day after Sabbath, the day that you bring the bundle of grain to be lifted up for a special offering, I want you to count off seven full weeks. Keep counting until the day after the seventh Sabbath, this equates to 50 days. Then I want you to present an offering of new grain to the Lord. For wherever you live, bring two loaves of bread to be lifted up before the Lord as a special offering. Make the loaves from four quarts of choice flour. Bake them with yeast that will be an offering to the Lord of all the first of your crops. This is first fruits was the, the spring harvest. Shavuot or the feast of weeks was, I want you to bring the first of your summer harvest. Along with the bread, I want you to present seven one-year-old male lambs with no defects. I want you to produce one young bull. I want you to sacrifice two rams as burnt offerings, Lord. These burnt offerings together with the grain offerings and liquid offerings will be a special gift. Then you must take one male goat as a sin offering and two one-year-old male lambs as a peace offering. Pause right there. I really hope that you're starting to pick up this theme. The theme is that our reality costs something. 
our sin, our weight, our burden. And, and here's the deal. We live in a culture that really doesn't like death. I remember years ago, I got to go on a mission trip to Ethiopia and I love the people of Ethiopia and, and they had this celebration that they wanted to host in my honor because of uh, we had built a well, we had built a wall and I was kind of a, 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 an emissary, if you will, for our church and, and how we were funding this small village. And so they, they were gonna throw me a party that evening. When I arrived to work that morning, we were still building in the wall, we were finishing it. I, I noticed as they brought in a goat, to the school. Now at the school, there's 2,400 students in it. They had no running water. You can see the significance of building a well. The problem is, is that water changes everything. So with the presence of a well, we had to put up a defense. We had to build a wall to protect the water or else it would go out of control. So they brought the goat and it was really crazy. I knew that they bought the goat because someone had spray painted sold on its side of it. That was odd. That's Ethiopia for you. But then they brought it into the walls and they just took it off the rope and they smacked it from behind and it took off running. I'm like, we got pets. This is awesome. I watched as all these little kids started chasing it. And I'm like, oh, look, they're trying to love it. And then they started throwing rocks at it and beating it with sticks. I'm like, what is happening? And I'm running after these kids. I'm like, stop hurting this goat. And they wouldn't listen. They're laughing. I was the crazy white person. And so I went to the leader and I was like, hey, what are you doing? He's like, oh, no worry. They tenderize. I'm like, tenderize what? He's like, we're eating that tonight. I'm like, later that night, I was just fascinated by this. This end of the school day, the goat's like terrified, PTSD in the corner somewhere. The kids go home and then they're like calling for it. I'm like, that thing ain't coming to anyone, Okay. They go and they grab it. They get on a rope and they're like, here. And they hand me the knife. They're like, you do it. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, I do what? They're like, slit its throat. And they're like, grab this thing and they're holding it. And I literally, I'm like, no, no. And because I'm a good Quaker, I just, no, I'm not doing it, man. Life. And literally, I had to like, I'm not killing that thing. I can't do it. I'm not. You can mock me. I couldn't do it, but I stayed there. Someone else did it. And I watched this thing and I'm not trying to be graphic for the sake, but I will tell you, it is not pretty. It's a mess. And, and I am fascinated when I tell you that story, not, not for fun, but to sit here and go, you understand, we live in a world where we don't like messes. Yet these people, they celebrated and they remembered and they oriented their life on recognizing that their cost of their life is the mess. That for them to experience the freedom of God, it come at the cost of blood. And things that they loved, things that they had gotten accustomed to, things that they had known had to die so that they could have life. And there was blood spilled. And you have to understand, these people had to travel to the temple with us. I mean, it was a caravan of young animals. It wasn't just pack the kids. It's bring the, the bull, bring the goat, bring the sheep, bring everybody. Let's get them there. It was a burden. But they did it joyfully because they knew that it blessed and honored what their summer would look like. Shavuot was never tied to an actual calendar date in the Bible. It was instead divined as a calculation of 50 days, the day after seven weeks had passed from the Feast of First Fruits. 
Shavuot was the second of three decreed uh, feasts that were called solemn feasts, meaning that the, the men of Israel had to journey. So in the spring, we had two where they had to go to the temple, one in the fall. They were obligated to present themselves at the temple. In the Greek language, Shavuot was known as Pentecost, meaning the 50th, since it was celebrated on the 50th day of the Feast of First Fruits. In addition, the Talmud and Josephus, which were two Israel uh, historians or historic books, uh, they said that, that the, the Feast of Shavuot was, was a festival meaning conclusion. They viewed Shavuot as the conclusion of the Passover season. It was the seven-week spring harvest since there are no other holidays in the summer. And they waited. It was what sustained them till the fall. Now, I, I tell you all this, but I'm going to ask you to do something that's a little crazy, okay? Just go with me. I want you to, if you can, and I know you can't, but to do your best, is to try to, to separate yourself from your first world realities. I want you to separate yourself from the new covenant realities. I, I want you to picture that, that you don't just get to have a church with padded seats and air conditioning and, a, and an altar or a stage that is free of blood and fire. But, but that you lived in this time where you had to journey and you had to orient your life, your calendar around these feasts. And you knew that if you missed one of these feasts, it, your life was in jeopardy because it's what sustains your life. And here we are in the spring and it's the final feast. It's the big one. It, it's Shavuot. It, it's the, the celebration. It's this time to remember and a time to orient our life as we work hard through the summer and we hold until the feast in the fall. And I want to read you something, but I want you to get there. So maybe you have to close your eyes. Maybe you have to bow your head. Or, or maybe you just have to look up to the sky. But whatever gets you into that frame of mind as I read this, I ask that you do this now. The year was around AD 30. It was a hot morning late in the month of May when the day of Shavuot came that year. Throngs of Jewish worshipers crowded the temple courts since Shavuot was this pilgrim holiday. Many were visiting from other countries throughout the Middle East, North Africa, Europe, and Asia. It was a melting pot of cultures all coming to worship. Suddenly, there was a roar like thunder, uh, wind blowing. It was heard overhead. It was a violent windstorm. But, but how could this be? Uh, there, there were no clouds. There was not a breeze. In fact, it was the wrong time of the year. This was May. This was, this was the start of summer. It was when there was the least amount of storms. The, the worshipers looked confused, searching the cloudless sky for a source of the disturbance. Not knowing what to do, they, be, they began to ask each other. They began to flood out of the temple and into the courtyards. Uh, and then sure enough, there was, there was these 12 guys on the street they immediately began to address a barrage of excited queries and questions from the crowd. But to the astonishment of the crowd, the 12 answered in various native languages. This caused an uproar and a discussion because these 12, they were obviously from Galilee. You, you could tell by the way that they were dressed. You, you could tell by their poor clothing. And... Who had ever heard of an educated Galilean? Education was centered in Jerusalem, not Capernaum. 
How, how were these uneducated Galileans able to speak not only the languages of these men from all these different parts of the world, but to speak them with the very accents as if they were their mother tongue? Many uh, confused, pressed for answers. Others began to mock and accuse the men of drunkenness. Word of the wind and the fire spread quickly and the teeming crowds were now leaving the temple service. The streets were filling fast. Communication was becoming impossible. The, the 12, not knowing what to do, they worked themselves to the plaza. And then, then there was this one guy, his name was Peter. Apparently he was the spokesman. In the sea of humanity, as it was assembled in the plaza below, Peter ascended the highest point that he could. And then all of a sudden, he was recognized. He was recognized as one of those, those Galileans who, who followed that crazy guy, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. The, the one who had been crucified almost two months earlier at Passover. The, the crowd, they fell silent, and they fixed their gaze upon Peter as he began to speak, and he declared... Silence overwhelmed the place. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I have to say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet of old. This is the words of Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days that God says he will pour out his spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Church, what happened next is Peter continued the story. He talked about who Jesus really was. Not the Jesus that they knew, not the Jesus that they heard, but the Jesus that conquered the grave. It tells us in scripture that 3,000 people got saved that day. 3,000 men. It doesn't tell us about the women or children. All of a sudden on this Shavuot, this feast of weeks, 50 days later from Passover, the Holy Spirit descends. And I find it so funny because we just got done singing a song, Christ our King. We're waiting. We're waiting. So what does this have to do with us? What, is, what do we do with this? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked. I think Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, and it's a letter to the church in Corinth. And you gotta remember, Paul is this religious zealot, this crazy guy, terrorist, who has an interaction with the same Holy Spirit that showed up on Shabbat, on Pentecost, that caused confusion and chaos, but yet caused life change. It was power and authority. It came to Saul and it changed his life in such a way. And now he is pastoring this church. And look what he tells the people in Corinth. He says, don't you realize that sin is like a little yeast? Kind of like the feast of unleavened bread. It spreads throughout the whole batch of dough. Get rid of the old yeast. Remove that wickedness that is pervasive, the wickedness that's around you. Then you will be a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb. Christ, our Passover lamb. I'm just going to pause right there. I think each and every one of us have to read this from our own perspective. I can read this as Christ, my Passover lamb. 
I gotta be honest with you, church. I don't know if he's your Passover lamb. Here's what I mean by that is, do you know him? Did you invite him into your house? Did you hold him? Did you love him? Did you let him take on your sin and your iniquities and your shame and go to the cross for you? Or is he just a lamb? Is he your lamb? Do you know him? I I can't answer that for you. If I could, I would. But Paul goes on, he says, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. So let us celebrate the festival, not with old bread, the bread of wickedness and evil, but with a new bread. A bread that sustains us, a bread of sincerity and truth. And church, I have to be so honest with you because it's sincerity and truth. The greatest threat to Western civilized church, Western civilized Christianity, is we actually don't operate in sincerity and truth. We don't tell each other the truth. We act as a facade. And when we show up, we don't show up in sincerity and authenticity. We, we, we show up covered and pretending. And yet we want God to bless it. I'm telling you, God can't bless what isn't in order. God can't bless who you wish you were. He, he can only bless the real you. This past week, I... Uh, I got to go to a board meeting for a mission organization that our church sponsors. Sponsors supports. That's the, your generosity hopes fuel a mission organization that is reaching people in 65 countries all over the world. And I gotta be real honest, just true confession because I owe it to you to be sincere and truthful. I thought I was going to honor them. I really did. I thought I was going to inspect what we expect and pat them on the back and say, good job, guys. What I got was my mind blown at what life is like in the rest of the world. And I know immediately it's because we're first world or people. We may like, oh, is it bad? No, it's actually the opposite. What's happening all over the world makes me actually feel guilty of what's happening in America. In fact, of the 193 countries that are in the world, 176 of them, the church is growing faster than the population. In fact, what does that mean? It means that what happened on Shabbat on the day of Pentecost happens 57 times this year alone. That's how many thousands of people are coming to know Jesus in 176 countries in the world. You know who isn't one of those 176 countries? America. In fact, of the remaining countries, five are in decline. Twelve are in stasis. That's where we find ourselves. And I find it so ironic that we're, we're singing this song, Jesus will wait for you. But can I be honest with you? Jesus is actually waiting for you. We're not waiting for him. We know the story. He's waiting for us to do and to operate and to exist and to activate the power he gave us because the same Holy Spirit that fell on Shabbat, the same power that caused confusion, the same power that caused 3,000 men and maybe more to surrender their lives to Jesus and believe that Jesus is who he says he was is the same Holy Spirit that operates in you. And you know what we do? We go around telling people our opinions, not the good news of the gospel, 
I heard it from a lady that, again, blew my mind. I mean, just keep hearing this information. And this lady, I mean, she's this small, petite, uh, I, I hate to be judgmental, but I'm like, who are you? And she gets up on the stage and she, she starts to talk and she's like, thank you for having me. And she then tells me her name and, and I can't tell you her name because you'll understand in a second. She's a missionary to one of the three Islamic controlled state government countries in the world. And in 2009, while her and her husband and her four children were serving in this country, Two members of Al-Qaeda came in, tried to kidnap him. When he fought back, they put two bullets in his head and killed him. She took her husband and her family. She moved back to the United States. And as she was praying and as she's grieving over the loss of her, her husband, she hears the Lord say, I didn't ask you to grieve two things. I asked you to grieve one thing. And she says, what do you mean, God? She goes, I didn't release you of the obligation, the call to go back. So wouldn't you know it, her and her four kids got back on a plane and flew back to the country that cost them everything. She wrote a book called We Were Dead Before We Left because they were dead to Christ and his will. Wouldn't you know it, several years later, uh, they're doing prison ministry. You think our prisons are bad? Go to prisons where they don't even care what happens. And they found that the greatest form of missionary work in some of these countries is actually to care about the people no one else cares about. Women, children, and prisoners. Huh, I think Jesus said something like that. Crazy, right? She goes, starts going into prison. She brought a team of dentists from all over America. They were doing dental procedures. They removed 1,200 teeth in one day. She's like, yeah, try going and living in a prison with no health care, nothing with an absence and see how comfortable you are. While she was there, a man came in and as soon as the man made eye contact with her, he crumbled before her. It was the man that killed her husband. And she watched as he was prayed for and accepted the good news of the gospel in her presence. And she got to look him in the eye and said, I don't hate you. I love you because God loves me. And I forgive you because God forgave me. And I tell you that because I wonder why we are so ashamed of the good news of the gospel. I wonder why we are the biggest hope dealers in this side of the world. When we have all the authority that the gates of hell cannot prevail, why aren't we out telling people the good news of the gospel? And I come back to this simple verse that says, Christ, our Passover lamb, and I think we read that too assumptively. And I'll read it again. Christ, I think he's, I want to testify he's my Passover lamb. But is he your Passover lamb? And I, I can't answer that. I can't answer that. But I can invite you to ensure that he is. Scripture is very clear. It says, if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord and you believe in your heart that he is who he says he was, that he conquered the grave, then you are counted as one of his. In fact, it goes, doubles down. It says, it says, heaven is rejoicing. But see, we read that wrong. It doesn't say that the angels are rejoicing. It says that the king himself is rejoicing in the presence of the angels. The biggest party planner in the world is God himself. And he's inviting you to a party of life change. 
And he's celebrating the decisions that made today. And so uh, church, as we sing this song, as we declare this, and listen, don't sing it and don't declare it unless you mean it. Because I don't think you're waiting on God. I think you actually, he's waiting on you. Do you really want the helpless to know Jesus? Do you really want to see the buildings restored? The, the ruins come back to life. Do you want to see the kingdom of God expand? Because it can't just be my voice on a stage in some building. It's gotta be your voices in the world testifying to the good news of gospel. As we sing this song, if you pray that prayer today, I would encourage you, you have a holy assembly with God and you just confess with your mouth that he is who he says he is. And you believe in your heart with every fiber of your being that he is the son of God who died as your Passover lamb and conquered the grave. Church, would you stand as we pray? Father, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for your word. Thank you that God, these feasts tell us we can bank on your promises. That Father, what we celebrate and Passover, you have become our Passover lamb. What we bring to you in, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Father, we, we remember that, that sin is pervasive and so we remove that wickedness and surrender to you. And we don't wait, we move in haste towards you. And Father, we bring you not just what's left, God, we give you our best, whether it be the first of our give, our money, the first of our stuff. Father, we give you the best because you deserve the best. And Father, we celebrate on Shabbat, the Feast of Weeks, that not only did you fulfill what you said you were going to fulfill, but you blessed us with your Holy Spirit. That you gave us a power and authority to participate in your forcefully advancing kingdom. That we get to assist you in pushing back the gates of hell in Willoughby Hills and beyond by testifying to your good news. And so, Father, we honor you, we celebrate you, we declare you are our king. And we remember, we rest in the fact that you are who you say you are. We celebrate that you are who you say you are. And we remember it. And we declare it. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen, amen.